Please stand with me if you would. As we hear the Word of God that is inerrant, sufficient, and authoritative. Our text this morning is Galatians chapter 6 from verses 11 through 18 through the end of the chapter. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Let us pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless us this morning from your word, that we might know you better, that we might know our duty to you, and that the Lord Jesus Christ might be magnified. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. It's a lost art today, so much so that it's exceedingly rare to go to the mailbox, open it up, and to find an actual letter. No, not junk mail. No, not a printed out email. But an actual, honest to goodness, handwritten letter. It's such a lost art that we have even lost the sense of the famous P.S. at the end of the letter. Nowadays, we think of a P.S. as something that is trivial or minor. We stick it at the end of an email or at a conversation. But years ago, the postscript, which is what P.S. stands for, the postscript to a letter was often something that was so important that it couldn't be left out and that it was there to draw your attention to it. You might think of it as something similar in a different way. Some of you are back just recently from college on spring break. Others of you have sent children off to college. Still others of you have been to college. And you know how it goes. The first time the parent drops off the child, even though they've spent 18, 19, 20 years drilling home principles, encouraging, admonishing. There's always that moment when they get to the door and they turn around and offer at least a few sentences of wisdom, right? It's a follow-up on everything you've been teaching and saying. That's what Paul is doing here this morning. He's writing a postscript. We know it because he highlights it for us. He tells us, 
Oh, by the way, now I'm writing. My secretary stopped. I'm writing right now. He's summarizing the entire letter of Galatians for the Galatians. And he's doing it in such a fashion that they know that all that he has been teaching them is about the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what I would like us to see this morning from our last text here in Galatians are three things. As Paul talks a bit about boasting or glorying, the first thing that Paul describes for us is the empty boast of his opposition. A boast that is full of nothingness. A bunch of hot air, we might say. And then he contrasts that with his own unlikely boast. It's not something that you would think to boast in. But he does. And oh, does Paul glory in this unlikely boast. And then after he has described for us this empty boast and his unlikely boast, he describes for the Galatians and for you and me what a visible boast our life should be to the Lord Jesus Christ. So let us then look first at the empty boast, beginning at verse 11. Paul says, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Paul begins talking about the Galatian Judaizers and what they have been doing. We've heard this before many times. Paul has been directing much of his letter against them. But in verse 13, he picks up even more. He says, For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. We might put it this way. Paul says about them that they are all talk and no walk. They're all about boasting, but it's empty. They don't have anything to back it up. You see, Paul knows the importance of this issue. That's why he says to us, do you see how large the letters I have written in my own hand? Some think this is because Paul has an eye problem, and he's reminding the Galatians that he has to write big. But I think a better way of looking at this, even if that was part of the issue, is that Paul is describing for them, hey, take a look here. This is important. You see, as I've mentioned to you before, in ancient writing, they didn't have different fonts. You couldn't click and make things bold. You couldn't even take your pen, really, and underline. You had other devices to let people know when something was very important. And here Paul is saying at the close of this letter, listen up. And we might even imagine, as these letters were read out in the congregation, that as the letter was read, they might say, look, Look at how big the letters are. See here. Look at what Paul is saying. And they would emphasize it for us. And it would be a stamp of Paul's authority. Anyone who has taken any American history knows at least one signature. Am I right? It's such a signature that we use it as an idiom for signatures. We say, put your John Hancock here. Because John Hancock signed his name in such big letters so that even the king of England could read it. That's what Paul is doing. This is not just tying up loose ends. He wants their attention. 
And it's unusual the way he ends this letter. Normally, Paul ends a letter with pronouncements of joy, requests for prayers, and even a doxology. But here, no. Paul is still all business because the gospel is at stake. And why is the gospel at stake? It's because he is combating people that are living personifications of the saying, do as I say, not as I do. Because you see, they talk the big game. Well, you must keep this law, and you must keep that law. If you would be saved, you need to do this, and you need to do that. And Paul says, have you looked at them? They don't even keep the law. Now, that shouldn't surprise us, because earlier we saw Paul say that no one can keep the law. The law is so broad and deep. But you see, Paul says, they are talking the talk with no walk. And he puts it in kind of an interesting way. He says, for even those... You see, the last people you might have expected not to keep the law, would be the people with the biggest drum beating the loudest, law, 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 law. But you see, Paul says, just because you beat the drum and yell, doesn't mean you practice what you preach. It's important to do what you say. But you see, the Judaizers don't. They're all talk and no walk. Now, we might stop for a minute and think about this. That as we conduct our ministry here, are we going to be just talk? Or will there be walk behind us? As we go out and about in this community, as we have talked about planting a flag for Jesus Christ, as we have talked about ministering to people, as we have talked about meeting needs, as we have talked about helping and encouraging one another, will that just be talk? Or will we obey the dictates of the Scripture and walk that walk and follow along in the path of Paul and the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, you see, these Judaizers, they're all talk and no walk. And part of the reason is that they are gripped by fear. You see, often those who are the most controlling and manipulative are at rock bottom scaredy cats. They're frightened. And what are the Galatian Judaizers frightened of? Well, what is their motivation here? Paul says, and I want you to note, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So it's not Paul just guessing. This is not, you know, pious advice. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul says, the reason that they would force you to be circumcised is so that they might not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. You see, Paul knows what's going on here is they are trying to avoid persecution. And Paul knows what he's talking about. Because in chapter 5, in verse 11, he says this, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? Paul says, I know what persecution's about. And I'm getting it. And you see, they are doing this. They are imposing upon you. They are giving restrictions and additional things to be done for salvation because they don't want to be persecuted for the cross of Christ. You see, we often think about persecution in the Bible and we think Romans. We think of Nero lighting Christians on fire. We think of the lions in the arena. That's what we think of. But you see, to these early Christians, persecution came from the Jews. Stephen being stoned in Acts 7. 
Paul, his job is to go and find and throw into prison Christians. And you see, if there's a way to avoid persecution, it's to be able to, on the side, when someone comes up and say, what's going on there in Galatia? You say, oh, don't worry about it. They're all circumcised. They're good Jews. And you can avoid persecution. You see, the Romans, to the great extent, didn't really care. As long as people kept the peace and paid their taxes, they didn't really care what God you worshipped. But the Jews were another matter. And you see, the Judaizers wanted to avoid persecution. And they were guilty of something that we too can be guilty of if we're not careful. They were guilty of over-contextualizing the gospel. We hear a lot about that, don't we? Contextualizing the gospel. And we certainly want to do that. We don't want to pretend that we live in Africa or in 15th century France or in 12th century Germany. We want to treat people and deal with people where they are. But you see, what the Judaizers were doing was trying to make the gospel fit into the shoehorn of their culture so that the cross wasn't offensive so that there wouldn't be persecution. They weren't just trying to make people understand. They were trying to change the gospel. And we can be guilty of this as well. How many times have you seen or heard of American missions groups that believe that in order to reach Egyptians or Africans or Asians or Koreans, first they need to sort of make them Americans? Right? We need to be aware of that of not over-contextualizing the gospel. Because you see, this manifests itself. This fear manifests itself in over-contextualizing and in controlling others. You see, the Judaizers are afraid. And so they're trying to control everything around them, even the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says, they would force you. The, the force of the word would here is they're trying if they had their way, they would make you be circumcised. They're doing everything they can to impose their views on you. But the other thing that they're boasting in emptily is that they want to be big shots. Some of you are old enough to remember the old Billy Joel song. You know, you had to be a big shot, didn't you? That's the cry of the Judaizers. They want to swagger down the street. They want to be known. They want to make a good showing, Paul says in verse 12. You see, and the irony here is, do you notice something? Paul doesn't even name them. He says, those who want to make, in verse 12, and those who would be circumcised, or excuse me, those who are circumcised, in verse 13. He doesn't even denigrate himself. He doesn't even condescend to give them names and say, this party and this person. Because you see, that's what they want. They are all about ecclesiastical stats. Church stats. We can almost imagine the letter that goes home to Jerusalem. To the hardliners. Guess what? 100 circumcised last week. Do you see what God is doing? You see, they're all about statistics. And that, too, is something that we need to be careful about. Pastors especially need to be careful about it. When, as John and I will go, Lord willing, to our conference at Twin Lakes, 
One of the temptations will be to stand around and say, how are you doing? Well, you know, we're running about 120. Well, you know, the budget was about X. But you see, it's also true of all of us, especially as we think about moving into a new building. Is that what our ministry is going to be about? How many seats we have in the building? How nice the brick looks? Is it going to be in the outward show? Do we want to be big shots? You see, Paul says this is an empty boast. And he says, instead, let me tell you what you should boast in. It's very unlikely. He says, but far be it from me, verse 14, to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You see, the first thing about this boast is that it is not self-serving. You see, boasting in yourself and your own record is a part of the old world. What the Christian has left behind. The works of the flesh. The works of the law. You see, now we are not to boast in these things anymore. Paul will develop this theme in Romans 2 when he says, you shouldn't boast in the works of the law. You're offending God. He'll pick it up with the Philippians in chapter 3, verse 4, talking about not boasting in works of the flesh. And he puts it this way at the end of Romans 3. He says this in Romans 3 and verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. You see, this boast that Paul is about to make excludes all self-boasting. We cannot have it. And what does Paul mean by boasting? Well, when we think of boasting, we think of negative, don't we? We think of someone bragging on themselves. Or we think of someone bragging on something that isn't really a big deal. But you see, the word here in the Greek really can connotate both things. It could be a negative boast, boasting in the flesh, boasting in self, or it could be a positive, glorying in something, something that engrosses you, something that absorbs your time. We might say an obsession, right? And an obsession could be something good or bad. If you have an obsession with triviality, it's not so good. If you have an obsession with prayer, that's a very good thing. It's what marks our lives. And so the question you might ask yourself now is, what is your obsession? What does your life revolve around? Is it your job? Is it your favorite football team? Is it your children? What Paul says is, while all of those things are good, your life needs to revolve around the only boast that you can have is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he uses the strongest language possible in the Bible. This, where it says, but far be it from me, the old King James, which many of you remember is, God forbid. It's the strongest way that you can say this. He says, God forbid that I should boast in anything except the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, the interesting thing is, this is a very unexpected boast. We have lost the sharpness of this. 
not because we don't speak Greek or Hebrew or... It's because we have grown up with centuries of a certain image of the cross. Polished, polished crosses on steeples or in church buildings. Beautiful ladies' necklaces. Right? Wonderful works of art. But that's not what the cross was to Paul and the Galatians in that day. You see, the cross was the most miserable, ignoble thing that you could boast in. The cross was so hated that you didn't use that word in polite Roman society. It was like a four-letter word. When people wrote about crucifying someone, they would use euphemisms like, he was hanged on the unlucky tree. They didn't want to use the word cross or crucify. We lose that sense. There was a Roman governor named Verres. He governed Sicily and he pillaged the land, stole, killed, maimed, ran roughshod, didn't obey the law, it was a law unto himself, and Rome ignored him until he crucified one Roman. And then the Roman armies came down and obliterated him. That's how shameful crucifixion was. It only took someone to stand up in the Senate and say, he crucified a Roman citizen. And they were incensed. And they came down. You see, there's a translation that I don't necessarily recommend for devotional reading, but I think at times it could be helpful. You may have heard of it. It's called the Cotton Patch Translation. It was done in the 60s, and it was done with a southern flair. Some of the epistles are like, the book of Galatians is called the, the Letter to the Churches of the Georgia Convention. But one of the things that I think captures this for us is, the way this translation is given, in this sense, it says, and they, far be it from me, but to glory in the lynching of Jesus Christ. You see, it's a word that sends shivers down our spine. It might be as if if we said, far be it from me but to glory in the electric chair or the fatal needle. We wouldn't think it was very cute if I passed out necklaces to all of our ladies of electric, little electric chairs. You see, this is the connotation. It's so unlikely, so unexpected. It would be understandable for the believers at Galatia to minimize this. Yes, Jesus was crucified, and I'll bring it up, I guess, if you really want to talk about it, but can't we talk about the resurrection? Can't we talk about him feeding the 5,000? Can't we talk about, you see, there's a sense in which it would be extremely shameful as they went out and about in society. Does that remind you of anything? Perhaps you have a similar feeling in the pit of your stomach when the subject of, is the Bible true, comes up. Or do you think homosexuality is wrong? Or what do you think the roles of men and women should be? And everything in society tells you, hey, shut up. Go with the flow. But you see, Paul says, 
To be a Christian, we must speak God's words. And sometimes that, in, sometimes that involves going against the flow. Glorying in what the world does not glory. You see, the cross is what is central to Paul's message. So much so that in 1 Corinthians, he calls the gospel the word of the cross. Chapter 1, verse 18. And he says he's not ashamed of this gospel. He's not ashamed of the fact that his Lord was hanged on a tree between two thieves, as we heard in this morning's reading. He's not ashamed of the gospel because it's this gospel. It's this death, it's this crucifixion that is the power of life in the power of God. You see, he's not surprised by the scandal. But it's so odd. It's an unlikely boast. But you see, Paul says it's not enough to be willing to boast with words. Even as difficult as that could be, he says your boast must be visible. Your life must be a life of glorying in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so he says in verse 16, excuse me, in verse 15, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. You see, being in Christ, boasting in the Lord Jesus Christ, is something that comes to you as a new creation. Now, the fullness of this is in the future. You know the saying, we are not now what we will be. John puts it this way, when we see him, then we shall be as he is. But Paul has also been telling us that we have the Spirit. And that this reality, this reality of being a new creation is realized to be upon them and upon the Israel of God. This would have been readily apparent to any Jew. It was sort of a standard blessing. It's like the equivalent of our verse that we put near the offering that's there every week. That's what that would be like. It was one, it was the 19th benediction. Now, why would Paul use a Jewish benediction? It's because he's been telling us over and over again that the true children of Abraham are those who believe by faith. And they are united by Christ. And it is upon them that peace and mercy is found. And you see, your boast must be to walk by this rule. What rule, Paul? The word here for rule is very close to the word for ruler. Like, not like a king, like one of those 12-inch pieces of wood that some of us that are older and spent time in parochial school got our knuckles wrapped with. It's a ruler. It's actually the word canon that we get like the canon of the Bible. The rule for setting up the Bible. You see, it is the organizing principle of your life. And that is namely being a new creation. <coughs> That is the rule that we are to walk by. Now, you may already be wondering, yes, the word for walk here is the same word that Paul used in chapter 5, 
verse 25. When he told us to walk with the Spirit. And now he's telling us to walk alongside that rule. March in step. Now why does that surprise us? For who makes us the new creation? But the Holy Spirit. This is the rule that we are to walk by. And you see, peace and mercy comes to those who walk by this rule. You see, even here at the end, Paul is not smoothing over the differences. He says, if you want peace and mercy, you must seek a new creation. You must seek the promise. You must seek faith. You must be united to the Lord Jesus Christ. There are all sorts of problems that come up when you say yes, when what you really mean is no. Have you ever done that? You weren't sure that it would be that bad and you just quick said yes and what you really meant in your heart was no and there was a series of problems that followed from it. You see, Paul doesn't do that. Paul's yes is yes and his no is no. Even though he knows there's going to be some people sitting in this pews squirming when this letter and the big handwriting is read. He cares more about the gospel. You see, this boast is in renouncing self and in trusting God. Walking by the rule of a new creation. Now, what does that mean? It means that this morning, if you are not a new creation, if you are not in the Lord Jesus Christ, not trusting in Him by faith, then you must repent. You must walk by this rule, or you will not know peace. You will not know mercy. You will not find peace and mercy outside of being a new creation in the Lord Jesus Christ. You must repent today, now. There is no way. Today is the day of salvation. But if you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are trusting in Him alone for your salvation, there is also something else that we need to know from this boast of trusting in God. We need to walk by the rule of a new creation. And what that means, Christian, sometimes, is that you need to remind yourself that you cannot fix sin. That is not your job. That is the job of the Holy Spirit. Walk by the rule of the new creation. It is not on you if your spouse is not a believer. It is not your fault if your children do not walk with the Lord. That is not your job. It is not your business. It is your business to do everything within your power to provide opportunities for God to speak to them through His Word, through His Word preached, through prayer. But you cannot fix sin. You are not in control. You must walk by the rule of the new creation. And finally, visibly we boast in the Lord Jesus Christ. (coughs) Not just by the rule of the new creation, but by actually, verse 17, bearing on our bodies the marks of Jesus. You see, Paul here, we can almost sense a bit of exasperation in his voice. He says, I've had it now. From now on, nobody bother me. And let me tell you why. He says, for I bear on my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The word here for marks is a word you're probably familiar with. It's stigmata. Now, that doesn't mean that we spontaneously grow sores in our hands and feet, like some fancifully think. No. The first thing that I want you to think of about a stigmata is it is a brand that a master would put on his slave. Down here in Texas, for centuries, they've done that with cattle. How do you know whose cow that is? Look at the brand. So it was with slaves. And you see, what Paul is saying is, I have a master. I bear his mark. Now, why would Paul say this? It's because Paul knows that the slave is only answerable to whom? His master. Not his friend. Not his neighbor. Not the guy down the street. The slave is only answerable to his master. And so it is with the Christian. You are not answerable to some Bible teacher. You are not answerable to a popular person. You are not answerable to a club at school. You are answerable to the Lord Jesus Christ as your master. That is who you are answerable to. But when we think of stigmata, we also can't help but think of scars. And Paul had real scars. And he says, these aren't illusory things. These aren't irrelevant things like circumcision. He says, I've got real marks on my body. And the Galatians would know this well. You remember the story in Acts 14, where Paul is at Lystra, and he is stoned, literally, and left for dead? Lystra was a Galatian church. They would know that. That would have already occurred. They would have known the marks that he had. Paul says, this isn't play acting. This isn't like what some of us might do when we get up to play paintball and we put on camo and think we're really taking a risk and we put the eye goggles on lest something happen to our eyes and we don't want to get a bad bruise. No, this is really suiting up for battle, for D-Day. He says, this is not playtime. But you see, this stigmata is also finally a mark of grace. You see, Paul says, I bear on my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. The marks of Jesus. My life is a testimony to what He has done. If you see me for what I am, it's because that's what God has made me. Now, notice that Paul wants us to focus on grace and the cross. And he says, you'll expect opposition. I've got these marks to prove it. I can guarantee... I can't say when, but I will tell you, if we are faithful and we seek to minister to Katie in Houston, we will face opposition. It may come from city authorities. It may come from other churches. It may come within your own families. Satan will seek to put down our ministry. But you see, Paul says, persevere. Look to the grace of God. These are the marks of grace. There's a new, relatively new, singer named Matthew West. And he has a song called History. And some of the lyrics, he says, I've got a picture in my head today of how heaven might look someday. 
I see the people there, so I pull up a chair, and their stories, they blow me away. Why? Because I can see it on every face, the evidence of grace. And he says, you have to find your place in the history of grace. What's your story about His glory? Not your own. There's a little bit older songwriter by the name of Isaac Watts that puts it this way. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forgive me, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most I sacrifice them to His blood. This is the mark of a Christian. This is the mark of one who is united by faith with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to show the marks of grace. It is to have a visible boast that others can see that is founded in an unlikely boast, in the most unlikely of things, an instrument of torture and death. The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. May that be your boast today. At home, at work, wherever you go. That your boast would be only in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this letter that the Apostle Paul has written. We thank you, O Lord, that you have blessed us by preserving it and by inspiring it. And we ask, O Lord, that you would grant it to us to boast only in the cross of Jesus Christ. For it is in his name we pray. Amen.